All right, we're going to take a few moments again tonight and continue to put together this portrait of generous living. Each night we've been going to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You can take your workbook tonight and turn with me to page 13, and you'll find an area there where you can take some notes on tonight's living, giving principle. Again, going to 2 Corinthians 8, and I'll start reading here off the screen. Beginning at verse 11, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. All right, pause a moment. Finish doing it. What's he, he talking about? Remember, he had challenged them as a church to take up an offering to relieve the suffering saints over in Jerusalem. Initially, they had all said, we're in. But as the time was nearing to receive that offering, they were finding excuses to not be generous. And he's concerned about that. This is stifling their spiritual growth. That's interesting. Twice you see this little phrase, give out of what you have. It is acceptable to, uh, according to what a person has. Now, he knew the folks there in Corinth. This was an affluent community. They lived in nice houses. They enjoyed a, a rich standard of, of living. He knew that. He says, I'm not asking you to do what's unreasonable. I'm asking you simply to be generous and share out of what you have. 13, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Now, watch. The saints in Jerusalem, going through a season of suffering and persecution, were in great need. The saints in Corinth, enjoying abundance. They had more than they needed. Paul says the reason God has given you an abundance is so that out of that abundance you can share with those in need. And he says, by the way, there may be a day that this situation is reversed. There may be a day that they're passing a plate in Jerusalem because the saints in Corinth are struggling. So now you and your abundance can share with others knowing that someday it might be coming back the other way. Here's our living and giving principle number three. God prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. In America, we are so immersed in this materialistic culture Work harder to make more, achieve to make more, so we can enjoy a higher standard of living. And God would counter that by saying, if I choose to bless you with more, it's not necessarily that you might live better, but rather that you might be more generous in sharing with others. We have to overcome this selfish bent that we all have. Greed is the disease, giving is the cure. Second Chronicles 29, 31. Hezekiah, this is the king. Hezekiah said, you have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. Hezekiah was living during a season of national revival the kind of thing we're asking God to do in our nation as well in these days. And again, an indicator that people are walking in revival is they become more generous. And it's not that they feel coerced or bullied. They were of a willing heart. There's this inward well of generosity now that wants to just be expressed by sharing with others. So Hezekiah says, come, bring sacrifices Thank offerings. Now, this was two categories of offering. Sacrifices were involuntary offerings. In other words, you had to bring sacrifices for forgiveness of sin. Those sacrifices looking ahead to what Jesus would do on the cross. So these were involuntary offerings. But then he describes a second category, thank offerings. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, you find that there was a category of giving that was purely voluntary. You didn't have to do it, and it's called the thank offering. It's appropriately named. It was a, a way to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. I don't have to do this, but I want to do it. Maybe you gave me a healthy baby this year, and I want to say thank you with a thank offering. 
Maybe you just gave me an extra abundance in my crops this year, a harvest, and I just want to say thank you, God. Or maybe no specific reason other than I love you. This was a tangible way for God's people to express thankful hearts back to the Lord. All right, considering our principle tonight about God raising our stand our, uh, 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 our possessions so that we can raise our standard of giving, uh, consider all the material possessions God has entrusted to you. Let's just think for a moment. Just kind of start tallying up in your mind. House, for some of you, houses, cars, closets full of clothing. You may have several pieces of real estate, jewelry, appliances, collections, I've seen fabulous gun collections. I've seen fabulous antique and coin collections over the years. Your checking savings account, a 401k, an IRA. What's interesting is over the years, we've had people give any and all of these possessions as part of their desire to invest in kingdom causes. See, when someone really wants to give, he or she gets creative about giving. You're sitting there thinking, Greg, now if you knew what was in my checking account, you're not talking to me. This, this can't apply to me tonight because I've got more month than money, okay? This is not me. But when people really want to give, you know what? They get creative. They look beyond just a checking account and begin to find other areas. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of watching people give automobiles to each other. I've seen people give real estate as part, again, of an investment and a kingdom cause. I've seen God's people get excited about this thing of giving. So here's the question tonight. What do you have right now that God may want you to give? As you think again about this inventory of all the stuff that we have, what do you have right now and I find that when God leads us in the area of giving, God's always very specific. We don't have to play guessing games. If you're married, obviously this is a decision that you make together. But it's been interesting how many times she prayed and I prayed, we've come together and we're pretty close, if not right on the money, of what God wants us to do. I'm not assuming God wants you to give it to our ministry. I want to be clear about that. As a matter of fact, my challenge to you in our final days together is to Ask God two questions. Number one, what do I have that you want me to give? And number two, to whom do you want me to give it? See, God may want you to give something to somebody in this body who's struggling. God may want you to give to a missionary. God may want you to give to a homeless shelter. That's between you and the Lord. My challenge to you is to be open and willing to obey. God's given you an abundance. Out of that abundance, you can now minister to others, knowing that at some point, God would return that to you. A couple were driving home from church on a Sunday, and it had been a very moving service. A family in the church had lost a son in the war in Iraq. That family had turned and made a significant gift to the church in memory of their son. And the church had used it to put in a beautiful new stained glass window, and it was the dedication service that Sunday very moving service. And as they were driving home, the wife said to her husband, that, that was a very moving service. And he said, yes, it was. And she said, you know, I've been praying. and I think the Lord wants us to give a significant gift to our church. And he said, now, really? Well, I'm not sure I agree with that. We haven't lost a son in the war. And she said, Exactly. How much more thankful should we be because of the generosity and the blessings of the Lord? All right, this is our home base verse. This is where we started on Sunday morning. Let's say it again together. Read it with me off the screen. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Now look at the word I've highlighted tonight. Us. The Christian life is a team sport. How many of you students play football, basketball, or baseball, a team sport? Lots of hands out there. How many of you growing up played a team sport? All right, see lots of hands. Basketball, baseball. I know a few folks play football here in Alabama. Uh, ladies, you play volleyball out there. So we understand team sports. The dynamic of a team sport, we need each other. 
For you and I to be successful Christ followers, we need each other. Jesus didn't die just to save your individual soul from hell. He died to birth a church. His body of believers on the planet. Ephesians 5, those verses that Shane has been taking us through, tells us that Christ died for the church, his bride. So his plan for you includes significant, meaningful relationships with others. All right, now in that workbook, we're going to be at page 12 for you to follow through. Students, you're going to fill in the blanks, every blank. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. That's in the New Testament part of your Bible. Ephesians chapter 4. As tonight we look at freedom through forgiveness. There are people sitting in this room tonight and you are in bondage. You're in slavery. Now it's true that you're free to get in your car, drive where you want, go where you want, go to Walmart, do your thing. But if you could see yourself the way God sees you, tonight you are in bondage. You are in slavery because of your unwillingness to practice the biblical command of forgiving one another. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30, we're going to jump there in just a moment. All right, here's our first blanks to fill in. The revived life is promoted and maintained by being rightly related to God and other people. Being rightly related to God and other people. There are our first two blanks tonight. Now, we started Sunday morning reading the great commandment. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. We didn't include his next statement. There's a second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. In other words, Jesus said, sometimes, what does it look like? Loving God looks like me loving you. And there will be times that me loving you will look like me loving God. Because in loving you, I'm obeying God. And in loving God, part of that looks like me loving you. Those commandments are mingled together. Now, up to this point, we've been focusing vertically on our relationship with God. You see the up and down line there? That's the vertical line. You're at the bottom, God's at the top. Since Sunday morning, we've been focusing on your relationship with God. And let me say the priority. We get the vertical straight first, and then we work on the horizontal, which represents your relationships with others. In other words, start first getting right with God, now you're in a position to begin to get right with others. Now, up to this point, some of you have been meeting with God. God spoke to you in the area of pride and the need to humble yourself. God spoke to you last night in the area of grace, how much you need Him, or in the holiness study that we had in Isaiah 6. And many have begun to meet with the Lord. Others are going to meet with God in a different place, right there where those two lines intersect. You see, right now, you cannot successfully love God because you're not choosing to love others and to walk in forgiveness. And that is hindering you in your desire to be what God has called you to be. Go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 4. Let me start reading at verse 30. Ephesians 4, 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now the command that we've just read, the command to forgive is given to protect us. We live in a world of hurt. People are constantly hurting us. Let's just think about how they hurt us. People have been hurt physically in this room. Maybe somebody stole something from you. You were in a business deal or you were in a partnership. Somebody took advantage of you and somebody stole something from you. There are people in this room who've been abused physically. You've been assaulted. 
You are the victim of violent crime. I was in a church in Kentucky two years ago and just talking before the service with one of the men, and he told me the story. He and his wife were in bed one night. They heard somebody kick down the door, and before they could almost get out of bed, there were gunshots, and they were both shot. It was a home invasion, a robbery. He survived that attack. His wife did not. It had happened years earlier. He had a long hospital stay in recuperation and was able to completely recover and eventually to remarry. That man had been hurt physically. People hurt us emotionally. They hurt us emotionally. Some of you grew up in a home where your parents divorced, and it's left scars in your life. Some of you grew up in a home where a parent intentionally or unintentionally kind of gave you the idea that you would never measure up, a perfectionist. And you just could never do it right enough. You could just never completely please him or her, and it's, it's left you with scars. Some of you grew up in a home where a parent intentionally or unintentionally deprived you of affection. You don't know what it's like to get a hug. Someone that just says, I love you, I want to show you that through a healthy show of affection. You are starved emotionally in that regard. Folks in this room who've walked through divorce, you didn't want it, you tried to fight it, you were in a sense an unwilling part of that divorce, and it's left deep, lasting scars in your life. People hurt us verbally. Now, I know what my mama taught me, and I knew that she had my best interests in mind, but when she set me down and said, now, Greg, remember, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. She didn't tell me the truth. Words hurt. There's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 18, and it says, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. People who use their mouths, their tongues like a sword to cut other people down. We even use that word picture when someone says something harsh, you say, oh, that cut me, cut me deep, or it's like you just stabbed me in the back. See, we even use that word picture. Words go down deep. They hurt. Some of you have been the target of hateful words, critical words, angry words. They may have been spoken to you decades ago, but the wound is still fresh as if it just happened. And sometimes it's not the words that are said, but it's the words that aren't said. A dad who never said, I'm proud of you. A mother who never said, I love you. And that's left those lingering hurts and scars in your life. People hurt us, and because we live in a world where people hurt us, God wants to protect us from the destructive influences of those angry words and hateful words. And so God says what you must do is cultivate a forgiving heart, a forgiving heart. Let me just pause and ask a couple of questions. You're learning we like to ask questions in a life action event. I've discovered that resentment unforgiveness can be a very subtle thing. We can even forget that we have not forgiven a person. Is there someone you resent? You're holding a grudge, nursing those hurt feelings. When you think of this person, do you feel angry? They may be a thousand miles away, but it's like they're sitting right next to you. The event happened years ago, but it's like it happened yesterday, and you just get angry all over again. Is there someone you blame for your present circumstances? If my dad had just hung in there and stayed in there and been a dad to me, if my ex-husband, ex-wife had just had a little more patience and just worked a little bit harder and hung in there and didn't shackle me with being a single parent, Do you have a desire to see this person pay for what he or she did to you? It's not right. It's not just. Now, you'd never say this, but would you secretly wish that something bad would happen to that person? 
Oh, you're too polite to say it, but if you heard something bad happen, let's be honest, you wouldn't be sad. Do you tell others about how this person hurt you? Just over and again, you just keep reliving the event and retelling the story over and over and over again. When this person's name comes up, are you more likely to say something negative about him or her? Here's the tough one. Can you thank God for this person? Can you thank God for this person? We talked the other night about in all things give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Let me give you some motivations for forgiveness. Motivations in the sense that there are consequences for not forgiving others. Number one, you will not enjoy God's full and complete forgiveness. Now go back to our text, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. To grieve the Holy Spirit means to offend Him, to hurt Him, to wrong Him. If we were to read the preceding verses, we would have seen things like anger and dishonesty towards others grieve the Holy Spirit. And then immediately after the command not to grieve the Spirit is the command to forgive. My unwillingness to forgive grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, when a person grieves you, when they hurt you, what happens? You're distanced from that person. You don't want to get hurt anymore, and so you withdraw. The Holy Spirit never leaves us. He's indwelling us eternally. But at the same time, that relationship is strained. The Holy Spirit is now not in a place where He can influence you as He desires because you are grieving the Holy Spirit. After Jesus shared with us what we call that Lord's Prayer, when He comes to the end, He makes some commentary. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The only part of the Lord's Prayer that he gave any commentary on was the command to forgive. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. That's the only part of that prayer that he came back and he said, I want to make sure you understand how important this is. If you are unwilling to forgive others, you're not going to experience God's forgiveness. Now you say, Greg, you taught us last night, Ephesians 1, 7, God has forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. But here Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. How do we reconcile those? As I mentioned last night, there is judicial forgiveness, God's complete forgiveness, and then there's experiential forgiveness. I can have judicial forgiveness, but not experience it. I'm still dealing with guilt and shame and condemnation. Why? Because I have not chosen to forgive others. There's a sense in which I have now blocked that flow of grace into my life. And I will feel far from God. Second consequence, you become a slave to destructive emotions. A slave to destructive emotions. Now, in verse 31, we have a list of six nasty emotions. Nasty emotions. All right, I've got some blanks for you to fill in here. Number one, we'll start with the emotion of bitterness. This is the first in the list of six. Think of this as the trigger emotion. Bitterness triggers a, a cycle of emotions that take us deeper and deeper into destruction and farther away from God. Now, what is bitterness? Resentment holding grudges, refusing to let go of that hurt. The very word itself, it becomes bitter inside of us. When you've eaten something bitter, you know, you just, it embitters us. It's like a cancer in our soul that eats away at us. Many warnings in Scripture about this. Here's one, Hebrews 12, 15. Let's read this one together off the screen. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Interesting phrase, root of bitterness. 
You see, that unforgiveness that you're holding on to, that resentment, it's now festering in you. It's like a cancer. It's rooting itself into you. It's changing you. It's robbing you of your joy. It's making you ugly. Ugly in the sense that people don't like to be around bitter people. It's toxic to relationships. The danger doesn't end there. Springing up, it causes trouble. It doesn't just stay in you. It begins to affect others as well. Your marriage relationship, your friendships with others, because you're holding on to bitterness. We were in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Young woman got up one night. She'd grown up on the streets in Fort Wayne. Beautiful young uh, African-American young lady. And, And she talked about growing up on the streets in Fort Wayne and being constantly abused physically and sexually. She came to faith in Christ. She found a young man who would love her and marry her and had a couple of children. But she said, you know, I continued to fixate on the abuse. And she stood before the congregation. She looked at her husband and she she said, you know, I've become an angry wife and I'm seeking your forgiveness. And she said, I've gone to my children and I've confessed to them. I've become an angry mother. You might want to write this down. Fixation, excuse me, yeah, fixation breeds imitation. Fixation breeds imitation. When you fixate on something, you become like that something. Even though it's something you hate and loathe, when you fixate on it, when you won't let go of it, it becomes part of you. It begins to change you. On a crisp fall morning in a Midwestern city, a woman stepped out of her apartment, got into her car, turned the key, the engine started to turn over, and then it just stopped. Well, she didn't know anything about cars. She couldn't even open the hood, so she called the mechanic. He showed up, opened the hood, and that's what he found. That is a very large exotic snake that during the night, attracted by the heat of the engine, crawled up into that engine for warmth. And when she tried to engage the motor, it became enmeshed in the gears and the belts, killing it instantly. Now, why have I made you look? Some of you are mad at me for putting that up there. I get that everywhere I go. Hear me. Let me tell you why I put it up there. That's what our soul looks like to God when we, with, when we hold on to bitterness. And that's what it does to us. It messes everything up. And we can't function. We can't be healthy. We can't enjoy life as God desired because of that bitterness. All right, the second in the list is wrath. The word that's used here is describing inward anger. This is the volcano effect, all right? It's beginning to seethe. Bitterness produces anger, just like the young woman I mentioned earlier. Her bitterness was now showing itself in anger. Now, it starts on the inside. But again, there's a volcano effect. It doesn't stay there. The next one in the list, each one leads to the next. Anger here, and this is describing outbursts of anger. You just become an angry person. You ever been in a conversation with a family member and you say something a little unkind? You know, you shouldn't say it. But then they way overreact. You know what I'm saying? They just jump all over you and you think, whoa, where did that come from? Wrath. She doesn't stay on the inside. And it manifests itself through angry outburst sin. That's one of the expressions of sin. It will be anger. That anger left unchecked becomes clamor. Now, clamor is conflict. It's quarreling. Now we're just at each other. Constantly criticizing and nitpicking and just saying unkind things to each other. The tension level in the home is rising. Hey, don't kid yourself that the kids don't know. They may not know exactly what's going on, but they know that there's something going on because our home is a tense place. Left unchecked, clamor leads to slander. To slander is to attack another person's character. Now, here's where we get really mean. My mother was right about you. I should have never married you. You will never amount to anything. You'll never change. Oh, those are curse words. We don't think of those as 
cursing as we define cursing, but they're curse words in the sense that they put curses on people. They scar people. And then we hit bottom, something called malice. This is just hatred. It literally translates evil intent. And now it's not just enough to have anger in your heart and to speak angry words. Now you want to do something. Now you may never carry it out, but if you would, uh, if you could, you would. This is a dangerous place. This is written to Christians. This is not the pagans he's writing to. This is written to Christians. Christians can succumb to this cycle and bottom out. Two women uh, on the page that you're looking at. Now, the woman on the left is named Sally Jordan Hill. Uh, The woman on the right, Sandra Baker Joyner. In 2001 in Colorado, the woman on the left was tried and convicted of murdering the woman on the right. The woman on the left was a nurse at a clinic for cosmetic surgery. The woman on the right entered into that clinic and went through a very routine cosmetic surgical procedure. She had to go under anesthesia. So they kept her overnight to watch her. Again, everything seemed to be going well. And then her breathing became more and more labored. And before they could even get the crash cart in the door, her heart stopped. They did an autopsy. They found that she had been severely over-medicated. The woman on the left was the nurse on her ward, the nurse in charge. It appeared she had intentionally over-medicated her. Why would she do that? They did some digging. Both these girls went to the same high school. Both graduated the same year. Woman on the left was the captain of the flag corps. The woman on the right was a cheerleader. At some point, the woman on the right had stolen the boyfriend away from the woman on the left. And even though it had been years and years, she never forgot. And in a moment when the other woman's life was in her hand, she snuffed it out. That's malice. And again, don't kid yourself that as a Christian, you or I are immune from these kinds of destructive emotions. All right, let's look at verse 32, and we're going to camp out the rest of our time in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. From that verse, I've got four forgiveness principles. All right, here's your next fill in the blank. You guys all staying with me? You're doing good down there. True forgiveness means giving up the right to get even. That's essentially what forgiveness is. Again, going back to Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. When you've sinned against me, it's like you owe me a debt. You've wronged me. And instead of me expecting some kind of repayment or compensation, I let you go. I say, you don't owe me anything anymore. This is what the act of forgiveness is. Now, this was modeled first by God. You and I are born into the world with an, a sin debt. If you lived a million lifetimes, you could not repay that sin debt. And so Jesus dies on the cross in our place, and he takes that sin upon himself so that God can look at you and say, forgiven forgiven. That's why we talked about grace last night. If you really understand grace, you understand forgiveness. Because all we're doing is allowing God's grace now to empower us to forgive as He has forgiven us. Here's our definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness means that I fully release the offender from his debt. It means fully clearing his record. It is a promise never to bring up the offense against him again. Now, let me show you what that looks like in marriage. You can't keep score. You can't keep score. When someone says, will you forgive me? And you say, yes, then you and I are agreeing to forgive like God forgives. And God promises never to bring that against us again. The next time you're in that heated discussion and you start looking for ammunition, you can't go back to that because you've said, forgiven. Number two, forgiveness is an act of obedience to God that often runs contrary to your emotions. Again, in verse 32, what we have is a command. 
Forgiving each other. That is in the imperative tense. That simply means it carries the force of a command. It is as valid and binding as any other command in Scripture. Forgiving another person is not just a polite thing to do. Not just a socially acceptable thing to do. It's a deliberate choice to either obey God in forgiving or disobey God by choosing not to obey his clear command. Now here's the problem. I don't feel like forgiving. I don't feel like forgiving. I've never felt like forgiving. I have to go counter feelings, but I'm in pretty good company here. Peter walks up to Jesus one day. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, if you've studied the Gospels at all, you know that uh, these 12 men that Jesus chose, well, let's just say they weren't the pick of the litter, okay? They, they, weren't, they weren't the brightest bulb in the box. They, they, these were guys like, like me, honestly, all right? They're knuckleheads, and they're always doing dumb things and saying dumb things. It gives me hope that God can use even me. Now, I know what's going on here. I love Peter. I can read him like a book. One of the other disciples, maybe it's Matthew, maybe it's Thomas, we don't know, but one of the other disciples has been ticking him off. Up to this point, it's happened seven times. Seven times he's taken the high road to forgive. And now he's coming to Jesus. Well, number one, he's saying, Lord, I've forgiven seven times. You could just give me a little pat on the back here, you know, Lord. I know you're proud of me. Now, can I do what I really want to do? Next time it happens, can I punch him in the nose, right? That's what he wanted to do. That's what I want to do. Someone hurts me, I want to hurt you. And Jesus says, uh, no, I'm not going to give you permission. If you want to try to keep score, Peter, well, 70 times 7, but most commentaries would say an endless number of times we choose to forgive. When is the last time following your emotions turned out well? Let's just be honest. When is the last time following your heart? Oh, everybody says, follow your heart. The Bible says the heart is wicked, deceitful. Don't follow your heart. Follow the Word of God. When is the last time following your heart, your emotions, turned out well? It doesn't turn out well. I was pastoring a church One of my men came to me one afternoon and sat down and with tears streaming down his cheeks shared with me that last night his wife had confessed to him that she'd been involved in an affair for the last couple of months. He was devastated. And he said, "I, I know I should forgive her, but he says, nothing in me wants to forgive her right now. I feel so hurt, so violated, so betrayed. And I said, here's what I'm going to ask you to do before you make a decision. Let you and I meet for a couple of weeks. And let me just walk you through some forgiveness principles. And, and then, if you're open, let's bring her in. Because she wants to, for, uh, to be forgiven. She wants to reconcile. Let's bring her in and let's walk through these principles of rebuilding a relationship. And he was willing to do that. And over the course of those weeks, God changed his heart. God gave him forgiveness for her, and she was fully repentant and broken, and God restored that relationship. We don't all have happy endings there, but I was so thankful to see that happen. Fast forward a couple years, and we're leaving that church. Patty and I are going to go to another church. Pastor, I know you've been through that recently. Oh, it's so painful. They line you, you know, they set you at the front of the church, and then the folks line up to come by, you know, and oh, it's so hard as they're crying, and you're crying. You're not sure if it's tears of joy or tears of, uh, you know, (laughs) one after another. Oh, we love you. Oh, we're going to miss you so much, you know, lie after lie, but that's okay. (laughs) So you're standing there walking through this, and I look, and he and his wife are at the end of the line. And then they walk up, and she walks up and hugs my wife and walks over and gives me a little hug, and then he walks up. Before I can do anything, he reaches out and he throws his arms around my neck and he pulls me close so that he can whisper in my ear. And he said, thank you. 
Thank you for not giving up on me. And thank you for not letting me walk away from this relationship and these boys. I was so thankful what God did in his life that day. A third forgiveness principle. True forgiveness is only possible with God's help. True forgiveness is only possible with God's help. Again, as you read through verse 32, we keep coming back to that. Uh, Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In other words, it's the very forgiveness that God gives me that I use to forgive others. I know your pastors have been through this. You sit down and someone begins to share their story. It's heartbreaking. Abuse, betrayal, and lies. And oh, I mean, you just hear the worst stories. And then they'll look at you and they'll say, now you're probably going to tell me to forgive. I tried that early on a couple of times and they'd just argue. And then I decided on a different approach. I said, actually, if I was you, I don't think I could forgive them either. Really? They, they kind of perk up, you know. But let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus could forgive that person? Yeah, Jesus could forgive them. Does Jesus live in you? Yes, Jesus lives in me. Then allow the Jesus in you to forgive through you. No, I can't forgive as God has commanded me to forgive. It's counter to my nature. But we talked last night about living under the reign of grace. Grace gives me the power and desire to obey God. And so out of the grace of God, I find the ability to do that which is unnatural to me. But I can only do it with God's help. Number four, last forgiveness principle. Forgiveness is demonstrated by acts of kindness towards the person who hurt you. Now, here's how you you know that you've gone full circle. Again, back to verse 32. Look how it begins. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Now, you're not some kind of emotional sponge. You can't just soak it in. You've got to react. You've got to respond. The question is, will you respond in kind, hurt for hurt, Or will you respond in a Christ-like way, choosing to forgive, even though they don't deserve forgiveness from your perspective? Read this one with me off the screen. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now here's the question. These are the commands of Christ. Am I going to respond with anger and bitterness and then Fall into that spiral, or am I going to respond as Christ commands? Love, do good, bless, and pray. You know, I found as a pastor years ago, it was hard to be angry at people that I was praying for. I know that you know this. Lots of good people in the church, but folks, there are also people in the church that are very hurtful. And typically hurting people hurt others. And they're carrying around all kinds of hurts, and they just dump it on us. I was pastoring one of my churches. I'd only been there a few months. Chairman of the deacons. He was a very successful man in the community, owned a business, very civic-minded. Chairman of the deacons. Well, he would take me to lunch about once every, you know, couple weeks. We'd talk, and we'd make plans together. We had this great relationship going until I had to make a decision and cross him. Because I knew in my heart it was in the best interest of the church. I wasn't trying to hurt him. I just knew that in the best interest of the church I couldn't do what he wanted. Well, that changed our whole relationship, soured it. And for a while he tried to undermine my ministry and hurt me, and God graciously protected me and others came to my defense. Then he and his wife, they just kind of moved off to the edge, to the fringe of the church. You know, they would come, but they weren't engaged, and time went on. I got a call one day from a mutual friend. He said, I just thought you'd want to know. He just found out that his daughter, who was away at college, has now openly embraced an immoral lifestyle. She'd been raised in the church. I knew because he was a, a proud father, it was going to break his heart. And I thought for a moment, and I picked up the phone, and I called him, and I said, uh, hey, can I just come over and talk with you for a few moments? He said, okay. 
I went to his house. We went back to his study. We sat down. I said, so-and-so called me, friend of yours and friend of mine, and here's what he shared. So I've just come to ask, is it true? Big old tears, yeah. And I said, I can't imagine as a father what you're going through right now. And I just wanted to know, could I just pray for you? He said, yeah, would you do that? We bowed our heads, and I, and I prayed for him. We hugged, and I left. Now, we weren't best friends after that. Not trying to, again, exaggerate the expectations here. We weren't best friends, but it certainly improved our relationship. Now, let me tell you why I tell you that story. Not for you to think I'm a great guy. Because my first reaction when I heard the news about his daughter's sin, you know what my first reaction was? He deserved that. This is God's vengeance. He deserved that. And the moment that thought appeared in my head, I knew I had not fully forgiven. And I needed to show kindness, not for his benefit, for my benefit. You see the difference? Again, I've been around the block a couple of times, heard some excuses here. They don't deserve to be forgiven. Oh, you're exactly right. Oh, by the way, neither do you. Is that how we're going to play this game? Is that how you expect God to treat you? You don't deserve forgiveness. Listen, the command to forgive, again, is not for their benefit. It's for your benefit. It's to protect you from these destructive emotions. Well, I'm still hurting from the offense. I'm going to wait till I kind of work through this and get over this, and then I'll go and forgive. And more than likely you won't. Here's why. You need God's help to forgive. Until you obey God, you're not the beneficiary of grace. It's when we are in obedience that grace flows. So I choose to obey first, even though I'm still hurting. And then the healing will come. I've seen it so many times, countless times. When people, you know the expression, guys, play through the pain. When you choose to forgive first, now you're in fellowship with God. Now the grace flows, and now healing comes. If I forgive them, they will be off the hook. I love this one. Sin makes us stupid. I can just tell you that out of personal experience. Sin makes us stupid. Well, I don't want them to be off the hook. All right, who can't sleep at night? You. Who's having all kinds of health problems? Uh, physicians have shown us that embracing anger and bitterness ruins us physically. Who can't get a good night's sleep? Who is far from God right now because of your disobedience? Someone has described holding bitterness against another like drinking poison and expecting them to die. <laughs> Who's on the hook here? They may be sleeping like a baby. <laughs> You're the one that's suffering. Hey, by the way, the judge of all the earth will do right. God says, I will avenge. It's going to be a day that everyone stands before the Lord. No one gets away with it. No one gets away with it. I cannot forget, so I cannot forgive. We have to be careful. There's these silly platitudes that we'll end up quoting. Well, forgive and forget. Actually, you don't find that in the Scripture. As I've demonstrated tonight... I've suffered hurts that I've not forgotten, but I can tell you with a clear conscience I have forgiven. And let me tell you why I'm not sure God wants us to forget. God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. You who have been hurt in a specific area, as you have worked through forgiveness, you now have the ability to come along someone who's hurting in that same way and say, I've been there. Man, I understand. I understand. You don't have to forgive. Uh, you don't have to forget. That, that's not part of the process. You may, you may not. But you do have to forgive. So here's my question tonight. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? You may be sitting next to someone right now, a spouse, that you need to forgive. Some of you, is, 
As soon as you get home, you need to sit your child down and you need to say to them, I want you to know that I've hurt you, I've offended you, and please forgive me. And you need to help them begin to walk in the process of forgiveness. Some of you have grandparents. You need to forgive. You have a brother, you have a sister that wronged you. You need to forgive. A business partner, an ex-wife, an ex-husband. I don't know that this is true here because I don't know you. It's entirely possible there's someone sitting on this side of the room and there's someone sitting on this side of the room. And the reason that you're sitting so far apart is because you don't want to be close to that person. And then you get stuck in what I call these awkward bathroom encounters. You're in there washing up, they walk in the door. You smile, but you know what's in your heart. You know it's not right. This hurts not just the Lord. This hurts the ability of this church to demonstrate the love of Jesus to a lost and dying community. Why would they want what they see in their homes and in their businesses? They're looking for something different, a community of people who will love and forgive. I want you to stand with me, please. Shane and I have been asking you to do hard things. The life of God in you produces action. Until we act on truth, it does not benefit us. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to be praying specifically for people who are struggling with forgiveness. Someone who knows that he or she needs to forgive somebody, and I want to know who I'm praying for. If tonight you know in your heart that you need to forgive, God has spoken to you. You'd like me to pray with you and for you. I'm going to ask you to come and stand right here at the front. I'm not going to make you speak. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. I think it's important your church family knows that you're hurting, that you're struggling in this area so that they can pray as well. Who tonight, God has spoken to you, you know in your heart you need to forgive. Would you just come and stand right now?